Good evening and welcome to Spaceman Pod. Uh, I'm Ian Edmund. And I'm Mark Lassels. And uh, this time we are going to be looking at the Waterman's Art Centre gig that everyone calls Dream Weapon. So we've been lucky this time to talk to quite a few people about this and uh, we've tried to cut it into some sort of documentary thing. So uh, enjoy the story of Dream Weapon. On the 19th of August 1988, at an art centre in Brentford, Spaceman 3 played the most unusual gig of their existence. This is the story of that night, and of how the recording of the gig became one of the essential Spaceman 3 artefacts. Waterman's Art Centre would often feature free foyer music. In the week of the Dream Weapon gig, there were also foyer performances described as being jazz, rockabilly, fusion, R&B and folk. The Spaceman 3 performance was described simply as Sonic Boom and Jason Sitar. It seems likely that the idea of a Sitar event came about before there was anyone in mind to carry it out. In his book Dream Weapon, Spaceman 3 and the Birth of Spiritualized, Eric Morse writes, John McIver regularly provided musical acts for Watermans, and when a listing appeared for Indian-influenced musicians to provide Eastern-style background music, he contacted Spaceman 3 manager Gerald Palmer with the booking. Can Pete or Jason play the sitar? inquired McIver, to which Palmer, with his typical business acumen and aplomb, responded, I haven't got a clue, but they can soon learn. Later day Spaceman 3 and early spiritualised guitarist Mark Rafoy remembers John McIver. Uh, yeah, yeah, I do remember John. He had the, uh, the uncanny ability of being able to produce big crates of red striped lager <laughs> after when we'd all run out after the gig or whatever, you know. He would just uh, turn up with a big smile on his face saying, uh, yeah, I managed to procure these from somewhere. <laughs> uh, he, he, he was a, a good guy. I didn't really know him uh, as well as Pete and Jason and people like that. And Will probably knew him. Uh, but I did get to know him in Spiritualized. I remember he mentioned once, uh, I don't know whether it was the Waterman's gig, but it was a, it was a Spaceman 3 gig. I, I wasn't there. But John was telling me that uh, after it, Pete and Jason both hounded him afterwards. And it was like that one was in one ear and one was in the other. And they were just saying, you know, get us gigs, do this, do that. You know, get they were really sort of uh, badgering him. But, but he said it was like uh, it was a measure of how how committed they were and how how they wanted people on board to uh, realise their vision, you know, and get them gigs and do things for them. Uh, and they obviously thought that John was the, the kind of guy who would uh, work well with them, and he did, I think. Steve Evans was a long-time friend of the band who was asked to take part in the gig as an extra guitarist. At that point in time, I shared a flat with Will Carruthers, and Pete was kind of a bit of the furniture. So I, I would imagine Pete would have said, we got invited to do this gig, and, and then I guess I got asked, do you want to join in? I mean, it wasn't like it was a Spacemen gig. It was like at that time, I think Pete was quite into his Saz. Do you know the Saz? Someone brought him one of those back and he was quite into that. And I think originally he was going to, I think he was intending to use that to do the uh, contemporary sitar. Will Carruthers had been a member of Spaceman 3 for only a few months by the time of the Waterman's gig. He had already taken part in the initial playing with fire sessions and had played one regular concert with the band at Dingwalls in Camden. It had been billed as an evening of contemporary sitar music, which was perhaps slightly misleading in that none of us had ever seriously played a sitar, nor had we brought one with us. Ideally, Sonic would have brought along his Saz, 
which is a Turkish instrument that reverberates pleasingly around drones and which can occasionally produce eastern sounding scales. Unfortunately, that particular instrument had been stolen from him by some music killer and a nefarious shit who shall remain unnamed. The Turkish Saz was actually an intrinsic part of the Spaceman 3 sound. Get hold of one yourself and play some ascending one-note scales if you don't believe me. Perhaps it was playing the Saz on a teenage visit to Turkey that had first convinced Pete Kemba that it was not necessary to be some twiddly-fingered virtuoso in order to produce a convincing and spiritually reassuring sound. Pat Fish was a well-established musician with his band The Jazz Butcher and had already played an important part in the Spaceman 3 story, helping them secure their first record deal with Glass Records. I can't recall exactly... Who alerted me to the Waterman's gig? It may actually have come through the bass player in my band at the time, Lawrence O'Keefe, who ended up in Levitation and Darkstar. It was quite short notice. It wasn't something that I really sort of had in my diary or saw coming or anything like that. Yeah, it kind of brewed up at very short notice. And Lawrence and I were invited into this thing. And the intention was that we would be involved playing you know, it was not uncommon for people to have little primitive jams with each other all the time. Um, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd have spacemen, you'd have Perfect Disaster, and you'd have my group, and we'd we'd often share a bill. And sound checks, you'd often get weird little sort of um, sort of groups of the moment. You know, just like a couple of spacemen, a couple of disasters, one of ours, all all just having a little jam. So things like that happened all the time. One of the Spacemen 3 fans who was at the gig was Andy Jackson. Andy made the recording on the night. I don't know exactly how I'd found out about it because there doesn't seem to have been any any advertising for it unless it was in Time Out or something. I believe I'd been crashing at a friend's in West London for a while so maybe I just heard it word of mouth or something. Andy had been a fan of Spacemen 3 for some time. I mean, The first time I heard Spacemen 3 was famous night when John Peel played them and then cut backwards and forwards to, you know, these other sort of the Sainsbury's on Puddle Duck Records or something. You know, this amazing sort of juggernaut of a kind of tonic chug that they that they got into. It just sounded like a, a like an atomic bee in a wind tunnel or something. So, I, you know, I was ripe for this. I was, I was straight down to um, Ugly Child Records in Walthamstow and I, uh, I snared me a copy. And I think a couple of months later, they played downstairs at the Clarendon in uh, Hammersmith. And, and you know, it was like this kind of optikinetic, swirly light, um, like padded cell down there. That was um, one of Loop's first gigs as well. That was a, quite a good little double whammy that night. I remember they started playing Roller Coaster and uh, I thought, oh my God, I'm never going to get home. I'm going miss to the, miss the train, you know. But fortunately, they played this kind of abridged version, and I did get home on time. So I'd seen them a few times over 87 in various, you know, support slots or headline gigs and uh, different permutations. I think they played at that Club Mankind somewhere in Dalston and did this um, Indian Summer set on sitar and saz. Also in attendance were members of the band The Love Blobs. Cole Todd and Paul Thorpe from the band tried their best to remember how they found out about the night. 
I thought, and I'm, I might be wrong, in it, but I thought there was a tiny little news bit in the front of one of the music papers. Not in the, the gig listings, you know, like the weekly thing, but almost in something like Sounds or something. Like, you know, Spaceman Free presents an evening of contemporary sitar music, Brentford Waterman's Arts Centre. And I think it might have even said free admission. I, I believe it also might have been because Tim and the band used to live in sort of Isleworth. And I live in Ashford, which is sort of on a bus route to Brent, well, Sunbury, which is a bus route to Brentford. And I also am a fan of Brentford Football Club. So it could have been even the local paper that I saw it in. That's what I think. I, I, I think it was it was something coming from you and Tim, probably because you were far more local. I didn't have a clue. I didn't even know where Brentford was, you know. We something for me, it could have been the arse end of nowhere. But but for you it was like a familiar kind of spot. So yeah, it could have been, and it's literally I knew where the Waterman's Arts Centre was. And maybe if I did see it, because local free papers, I mean round I, I think they've all gone now, but round here it was called the Informer. Now I where I live, it was the Staines Informer. Further on it would have been a Hounslow one, but essentially a lot of the stuff would have been the same. So I'm wondering if I literally saw it in that. I can't speak for the whole, but I figured, right, it's free, it's not gonna be a normal spaceman free gig, but it's almost like I actually kind of semi-expected them to be playing sitars. Pat Fish suggests that if the intention was to play sitars, then a future Spaceman 3 collaborator would have been a useful person to have around. They should have got in touch with Richard Formby. He really can. There was a period, oh God, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago now, where um, one of the fellows from Chumbawamba had started a group in which Richard actually played the um, sitar on stage. And they were called the Sex Patels. Paul and Col have been playing in the Love Blobs for a little while. I think we started, well, the band was... I started at college, at Sixth Form College. That would have been about 1987, I think, was when we first started getting together, Carl, wasn't it, I think? Yeah, well, I mean, I met Paul at Sixth Form College in Kingston. Um, and ultimately, we were both sort of scruffy indie kids kind of thing. Now, Paul's, it the Love Blobs existed as an entity with basically Paul on his own. And as time went on, it became a band and we sort of were a bit sort of shambly psychedelic. And I was actually essentially second drummer and percussion. <laughs> so a bit sort of Bobby Gillespie kind of. That was about, that was about 87, 88, wasn't it? It was. I think when I started, it was kind of a bit more of an indie affair. But actually, the turning point for me was seeing Loop. Um, and they were supporting, oh God, it was someone like Primal Scream or something like that at Yulu. And I remember just being so blown away by it because the light show and just the whole, again, it was like the noise of the thing and the, and the, the drone and all of that sort of stuff. And, and I remember on that first demo we did, we bunked off college for a day. We did, a, there was one song we did and, it, and it, I just remember I desperately wanted that song to sound like the round and round. Yeah, so Spaceman 3 kind of came out of the loop thing for me anyway. You know, it's, we, we were all into loop. I remember coming one of the first gigs you and I went to, it was the London School of Economics with loop. Yeah. Yeah, and it uh, that was still stands as possibly the loudest gig I've ever been to. It was a tiny room. Nitzareb was supporting. <laughs> yeah, rather bizarre. Yeah, so it's sort of looping headlining. Was some maybe Sunkevich might have been playing? Absolutely. I think Absolutely. there was someone else playing who was a bit. I it was like, you know, so you sort of. Oh, I'll tell you who it was, bizarrely. It wasn't something like the House of Love, was it? Really, yeah. really, really no, early. House of Love was playing, yeah. It was absolutely House of Love, yeah. The Love Blobs had previously played a gig with the band Sun Carriage, who had links with Loop. So the drummer, John Wills, he produced the first album because I think his partner at the time was 
can't remember her name, but she, she Sarah. Was Sarah, the bass player. She was the bass player in Suncarriage. Yeah, it was just, they, they, were, they, were, they were together, a couple. Um, and yeah, he did their first album. He produced, uh, sorry, the 12-inch. The and, and he produced our first album as well. Um, John Will. This, this, I know this is a Spaceman Free podcast, but what we were talking about with, say, Loop is, for example, yeah, our first record was produced by the drummer from Loop in the House in the Woods studio. And that's as much to do with the fact that, well, I'm not, but Paul and the rest of, you know, a couple of other people in the band were from sort of the Sutton area, which is basically where I, I still work now. And, you know, Sutton's just like the way from Croydon, Croydon Loop, House in the Woods studios on the M25 pretty close to Croydon and it was just like, oh we'll go there and it was just you know bizarrely you, you end up there and it's just oh well produced by the drummer from Loop and it's like the keyboardist out of Alien Sex thing did the engineer it was just <laughs> it was really bizarre but there wasn't the most there wasn't the most bizarre engineer we had one of our demos we uh, it was engineered by the bass player in Shack Attack and this was, this was literally a garage in sort of I was like towards Godalman instead of a home studio. And his wife was one of the singers in Shack Attack. It was the singer, it was the blonde they, singer. Fantastic. They just let us do what I mean. This was when I was when we were a bit more sort of indie going into sort of psychedelic and because I was a sort of second drummer with maracas and tambourine. It was just oh for this particular track, it was literally me playing and hitting a guitar with about six distortion pedals on it, and the bassist from Shack Attack's loving it. The Love Lobs had also had some history with Spaceman 3. We'd seen them a few times um, before then. So, so, I, so I got into Spaceman 3. Again, I, must, I was living at my folks' home, so it was when I was 16 or so. And, um, and I don't know when I bought them. But I do remember buying the first album, Sound of Confusion, putting on Losing Touch from My Mind and it being like, this is exactly the kind of thing I want to hear. And again, it had the whole, the whole psychedelic lighting on the back, you know, Kind of stuff just really appealed to me and then and then I also and then I got the second album they did look a little strange on the cover you know <laughs> you still the the bowl haircuts and we were all like bowl haircuts paisley shirts and stuff at the time and and they're in there in their cozy cozy cardies so they had an address on the back of the record um and I remember I wrote off to the address on the back of the record this is one of the ones on glass and I got sent back like a pack of these Spaceman 3 goodies and there was a whole load of kind of photocopied sheets of reviews of them and stuff there was a poster. And if you remember, um, Cole, do you remember when I was at Jamie's? We had that big poster of Spaceman 3 up. On yeah, the yeah, yeah. One that they had sent me and some badges and, and all this kind of stuff. It was, it was amazing. Because we had, you know, the music press rather than the internet. Paul and I, you know, we met at Sixth Form College, so 16, which is where we met Tim, who became the drummer, now part chimp. And the other Tim is actually, is one of the triplet and, you know, sort of one of my best friends is one of the triplets. So there's a, a big Sutton thing. And then there was Tim Cedar and myself as sort of southwest London a bit, or just outside in my case. But we all met up at Kingston predominantly. Paul was very sort of C86. I was a bit C86. And you just go on those tangents. And it's, there's things that, you know, I think the first gig we went to together was probably the Soup Dragons or something, or the Wedding Present or one of these sort of... Whereas for me... You know, because it's a lot of sort of John Peel as well. So with Paul, it might have been Loop first. Well, for me, I was a bit more going the sort of Sonic Youth way, but I had a real thing for the Walking Seeds. If we're talking psychedelic thing, I, I loved the Walking Seeds. But it was kind of, oh, they were on Pro Plus, so I'll write to Pro Plus. Oh, you know, I love you. I mean, it was just amazing to get that stuff. But um, I, don't, I don't even remember how we all then suddenly... I, don't, I, I can't remember how many times we must have been to see the Spaceman 3 around that time before the... It was at, at least two or three. I also remember seeing Spaceman 3 at um, the Riverside in Hammersmith. 
Andy Jackson had become friends with a couple of other music fans and fanzine editors. Nick and his friend Paul had started this fanzine up called Sowing Seeds. I'd got to know them from seeing them at gigs and it just so happened that around about the time when I was finishing school, they decided to get a flat together. It happened to be a flat which was three blocks down the road from where I lived. So all of a sudden, school's out and I've got some people to hang out with and somewhere to hang out as well. So that was fairly cool. And that's what we did for uh, a while. They would get in touch with bands and go and interview them. And sometimes I'd tag along as well. So they were doing this fanzine called Sowing Seeds. And it was, you know, it was quite a nice little um, magazine. It was uh, quite uh, properly printed, not just photocopied and stapled together. So they'd interview bands and and put them in the fanzine and um, get it printed up. And then we'd we'd sell it at gigs, you know. So I'd sort of join in, give me something to do. But um, yeah, come early January 1988, I'd basically, uh, you know, shameful but I'd sort of I'd gone to art college I dropped out of art college because it seemed far too much like hard work when all I really wanted to do was get a band together it was um it was early January 88 and I said to Nick oh look um there's this band Spaceman 3 that I've been uh, you know I've been going to see this past year and uh, you know really into them I'm saying to Nick well can I borrow the tape recorder because I you know I want to interview Sonic and so that was it you know I I was kind of elated on the night bus home just kind of broken through the 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 veil into this this kind of this nighttime world of uh, intrigue where people didn't have to get up for school or college or jobs or anything like that and this seemed very alluring Uh, we put the sonic interview in the next copy of the zine and I sent him a copy well, by this point, Loop, who I'd first seen supporting Spaceman 3, had generated quite a lot of um, interest in the press. And, and they'd sort of uh, overtaken Spaceman 3 in the, in the popularity stakes. So uh, that particular issue had Loop on the front cover, Robert Hampson on the front cover, with uh, just Spaceman 3 in smaller writing. So I sent a copy. I sent a copy off to Sonic to say thanks. He wrote me a nice letter back. I think I'd uh, apologised and excused, saying, oh, well, you know, Luke promised that we could um, put out a flexi with a track of theirs on it. And uh, Sonic wrote back saying, oh, look, you know, you're, you're welcome to have a Spaceman 3 track for a flexi, and we don't even want to go on the front cover. We asked Steve Evans what instructions he'd been given for playing on the night. Pretty much fuck all, to be honest with you. It was, it was, there was a definite sense of, we're just, we're going to wing it a little bit. Because, I, I don't know, I mean, it, it, was, it was basically, well, just, just play a chord. Just play a chord. Pat Fish concurs. Yeah, I think the letter A had been mentioned, yeah. Oh, we had total freedom. Total freedom. I mean, no one had told us to do or not to do anything. We were trusted you know, trusted co-conspirators, but uh, we never got to test it out. We never got to disgrace ourselves by doing anything wrong because uh, it never happened. Will Carruthers. Just play one note. Sonic had advised me and Steve Evans, who had joined us for this one-off show as we travelled down the M1 to London. Keep it simple. One note. No fancy stuff. By fancy stuff, he meant two notes. Anything beyond that was pointless. 
We could play one note, mostly. Anyone could do it. A monkey could do it. But could a stoned monkey do it with feeling and without losing its sense of identity in the glorious all-enveloping arm? Only time would tell, and as time was going to be behaving strangely again, we would probably have to wait until later to get an answer from that notoriously flaky taskmaster. Patfish remembers arriving at the venue. Well, you know, we find ourselves in the foyer of this arts centre. Um, it's still daylight, big windows looking out, sort of trees and the river. Nice, nice location, really. Will Carruthers. When we arrived at Brentford Arts Centre, we were pleased to look out through the generous windows that ran along one side of the reception room. These windows looked out onto the River Thames and Kew Gardens beyond the far bank. Bobbing merrily on the river were ducks. Happy ducks. I've played a few shows in my time, but at no point recall another stage that provided a view including a picturesque river and complimentary ducks. We were going to perform in this windowed room which also served as a cinema foyer, the main entrance, a bar and a place where people could relax and talk about art while looking at docks. I think there were a couple of swans too. This event was obviously going to be different. Andy Jackson. After uh, a decade of Thatcherism, Britain's youth were poised for an acid house takeover. People like us, though, were taking acid over each other's houses. Um, I think 1988 was the only year I ever kept a diary. And uh, in the entry for that day, it appears that I had a little nibble. But um, either it wasn't very strong or I was concerned about being in good enough shape to go to the gig. But I seemed to be fairly okay by the time I got there. And uh, made my way down to this place. I think I might have um, run into... Uh, somebody I recognise from Spaceman 3 gigs, I think his name is Benedict, got in there. Yeah, so as as Mr Morse describes in his book, he must have visited it more recently than me, um, it seemed to have these windows which opened out onto this very uh, sort of um, relaxing scene, you know, the winding Thames. Um, and it was a Friday evening and it was, uh, I think it was a, an overcast evening, so it was a little bit dusk greyness sort of comes along I got inside the venue I spotted a few people that I knew a few guys in a band called the Love Blobs and I went over and scuttled over uh, next to them and they were sat on the floor and I kind of pulled out my um, my recording gear and uh, you can hear it kind of on the tape me fumbling around trying to get the level sorted and I think I sort of placed it on the ground and, and we kind of sat there sort of in front of us were these two columns and seated in a line between these columns were Sonic and Jason and a couple of other fellas. Paul and Cole. There were like two sets of chairs. I think there were two sofas either side of them. I think that's what you call them. It was two sofas, yes. And and, and we were kind of sitting on one. And I guess that must have been with with Andrew because I remember we were sitting on the same side as, as he was recording it. And there were some other people on the other side. Now, I think I... It was a long time ago. It was a long time ago. I'm trying to get my memory for for which of us were there. And I'm almost certain there were at least four of us together there, but possibly five or six of us. Um, That's that's the weird thing about this and the way memory, because I have it of... 
which they can't have been because we were sitting in front of them and it was spacemen free and, you know, they were sitting down. But I have it as Andy, who I only knew as a face at gigs because he was obviously, he was friends with the people who run luxury records. And I found out afterwards there was a girl I kind of met recently who used to basically, I think she travelled around with Luke selling T-shirts and, so, and she was at that thing with Andy. I have them kind of on a sofa opposite us, which can't have been the case because we wouldn't have seen them. But it was literally two sofas. Andy Jackson describes the music being made. There wasn't a lot of movement going on, just a little bit of strumming. And, uh, and then this kind of uh, reverberating kind of tremolo winging its way all around the venue. Yeah, kind of in this sort of ambient way with the, the sounds of people enjoying their Friday evening gin and tonic clinking glasses all around. Paul and Carl. I think it felt a bit like background in a way. I think we were talking quietly, I'll be honest. You know, I don't think we were sat, sat there wrapped for the whole time, kind of, you know. Um, I think we were... I mean, it's difficult when you're a social player. I think it's one thing kind of losing losing yourself in a gig atmosphere and things, but when you're sitting on a sofa in a, in a, in a brightly lit foyer with, with your mates there and, and this other, the other bloke who was recording, and I, I do remember he was on the same sofa because I remember I was convinced our friend Jamie was there, but he reckons he wasn't. And one of them was talking to, to him. It might have been you, Carl. Um, but yeah, I think we were, there was some chat, chatter going on. Yeah, because we, we went there with no real expectations. And then it was just like, oh, well, they don't have sitars. But then it was, I kind of figured that, you know, I know what a sitar kind of sounds like. And it was going to be contemporary. It was going to be droney because kind of that's what they would do if they weren't playing, you know, Spaceman 3 songs. It was, I would have said, slightly more, you know, it was mesmerising, strangely mesmerising. But it was kind of, yeah, because it was sort of low key to the point that it wasn't kind of front and centre. Yeah, it felt, it felt like a, like a, I don't know, like an art installation in some way, you know, that, that, that a handful of people were sitting around and watching, but most people were kind of drifting in it because it was in the foyer. It wasn't in a separate room. So it was like a, a room where people were coming and going. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think for, for me, it was almost like, like an installation that we had a special interest in. Andy Jackson. This music's kind of what, 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 wonging away. I mean, what was fascinating for me was that it was so ambient that, you could actually hear the the sounds of the plectrum on the strings, you know, kind of clicking away a little bit. With everything that's going on sonically, the sounds of people talking, the clinking of glasses, the tannoy in the background announcing the film starting, and then the music kind of at the centre of it. It's it's kind of like uh, like music for airports actually in the airport. You know, one of these sort of ambient things, but in in situ, you know, like an installation or something. All of that extra stuff's just in the background and you can concentrate on the music. And it sort of rises and falls a little bit, reaches these kind of crescendos. It was only kind of later in the year when we started to hear stuff uh, that was going to be on the next album. that kind of realised that some of those little runs that had been played were actually just, you know, little snippets from songs that would that would be on playing with fire, you know, honey and things like that. At the time it was just kind of um well that's what you do 
with with a kind of a Ron Ashton chord up and down the neck. You know, the the Ron Ashton chord's just the the one where you play like E and B and E like an interval. It's not even a chord, is it really? Technically speaking, and then you slide it up and down the neck. It sounds a bit Indian, as Ron himself would have testified. Steve Evans. Seriously, I thought we sang. I thought it sounded brilliant at the time. I thought this is fucking great. You know, this is. It was. It was spacey. It was uh, jazzy. It's avant-garde. You know, all all the all the cliches. But it did sound really good, and it was a nice room to sit in as well. You're sitting there. It's a big long. Oh, I mean, it's not a nice room. It's a horrible room. But uh, but it was nice in the sense of uh, one side of it was all glass, and on the other side of the glass, you just got a nice picture. You know, nice view of the Thames. So you know, I I, I tried not to look at the audience because that's a, that was a, that was one of the rule ones, wasn't it? The spaceman, don't look at the audience. Will Carruthers. Sonic played the first chord of the performance on his Vox Star streamer using the built-in repeater and a heavy tremolo so that the sound might be pleasing to people who liked that sort of thing. The guitar pulsed out a regular rhythm all on its own that phased and gelled with itself as he turned the dial on the tremolo. Wop, 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 wop. It said turning time into atomic uncertainty and mystical probability as all focus settled upon the one, which was the two and the three and the four in the what 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 Steve and Jason began to play one note somewhere in time with the tremolo and repeater which were phasing across each other as the drone started to congeal into itself and become more than it should. I moved my plectrum around between my thumb and index finger and went for the most inconspicuous E I could find on the fretboard. Nothing too low and nothing too high. I wasn't going to be faffing around, sliding between octaves and running around the neck, so I started as I meant to go on and on and on and on. I locked into Steve's inconspicuous E within the blurring tempo and tried my best to find the natural mean between the inconsistencies. It sounded fine. I wasn't standing out or ruining the drone. In fact, I was so in time and tune that I could barely hear myself. I kept myself in line with the tempo by using the feel and the audible click of the plectrum on the strings of my electric bass. Tick, 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 tick. It melded perfectly into a seamless whole, and the grand pulsating amoeba settled into its centre, content and undividing, as it rippled and flexed gently within itself, occasionally stretching along its axis as the fluctuations in time and space lent tension to the eventual resolutions in synchronisation and harmony. The many became one, the one became the many, and all we had to do was hold it together and let it do the work as the repetition made nonsense of what we thought we knew. Pat Fish describes the audience for the show. You had perhaps two or three rows of young lads doing that thing of sitting cross-legged on the floor at the front. I wouldn't think there was more than about 15 or 18 of them all together. And then there was a few of us kind of milling around at the edges of the uh, of the scene. Andy Jackson didn't really pay much attention to the to the punters because wasn't interested in them. I was just interested in the band. 
I guess the kind of people who are going to go to uh, see a Vim Vendors film uh, an art centre are probably going to be your liberal lefty Guardian readers really they might as well have just been city boy Tory loads of money punters as far as we were concerned you know wasn't really our crowd Wilker others remembers the announcements for the evening's film finding their way into his consciousness then the actual voice of God appears ladies and gentlemen would you please take your seats for this evening's showing of wings of desire what we're already sitting down what does God even mean by that Steve Evans well, you can hear it, can't you? You can hear the announcement like, at some point through that recording, you know, and we could hear it at the time. You, know, you get the, uh, the announcer wafting across the top of what we were doing. And it's kind of, it, it added something to it. It was like, oh, yeah, even that, even that's, you know. Outnumbering the audience there to see Spaceman 3 were patrons of the Art Centre, there for the other events being laid on, as Pat Fish recalls. Well, of course, there are a lot of people there, were, they'd come to see Wings of Desire which is a fabulous picture, but, you know, you wouldn't think that there'd be that much of a gap between wanting to see a Vim Vendor's picture and being able to put up with some guys doing a rather beautiful sort of drone piece. But there, I'm afraid there was a bit of a cultural gap. And <laughs> there are some very comical moments. My very favourite one, and I swear to you this is true, They, the, the lads are droning away, and I thought, hmm, my glass is empty. Well, there's barely anybody here i'll slide back to the bar and i'll get myself another drink so i stood at the bar and at the bar there were two old boys i guess they were in their late 40s early 50s and they had a little bit of the kind of teddy boy style about them they'd got kind of quiffs and stuff and i guess they worked there i mean i got the impression that they just you know hanging out having a pint after work and um as i stood there waiting to get my drink i was earwigging the conversation between these old boys and they were sort of referring to what was going on in the room. And one of them, tru- uh, truly, one of them said to the other, Oh, do you think Elvis died for this? It was edgy. It was edgy. I mean, you know, you had your, ki- your kids down the front who were just like absorbed in it and just soaking it all up. But for the most part, you know, the regular citizenry coming and going, trying to go to the movies or get a pint or whatever yeah there was there was tension there was tension paul and carl i remember at the time yeah feeling like this feels a bit naughty you know it, it does feel like we've kind of got this band there and we're, we're these like grubby rock fans sitting in there and they're not really sure it's quite what they expected it's weird now kind of what we're talking about but i do remember this feeling of, of because it was it wasn't changing so it wasn't even just that they were there with their electric guitars and, and looking a bit not quite arty enough, but I think there was a feeling like what they were actually doing was probably an almost antagonistic a little bit in some way. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's... I didn't get quite the same vibe. I just kind of, apart from the two sofas, pretty much indifference or just like, what the bloody hell's that? You know, sort of, I didn't really get the antagonism. It was just like, why are they here? What are they doing? It's sort of semi in the way of going to watch, you know, Wings of Desire or whatever, or whatever else, you know, sort of happens in the Walkman's art centre on a general, you know, day-to-day basis. I mean, maybe antagonism's putting it strong, but it almost felt like that sort of... No, I don't don't think it was overt, you know, sort of like a fuck you from Spaceman 3 to the, you know, the audience, the organisers or whatever, but it was just like, no, we're going to do this, 
am going to do this for as long as we want to, or as long as we feel is the necessary time. And it doesn't matter if, you know, sort of, I just play the same note essentially for 60 minutes and then change chord with half an hour to go. That's what I'm going to do. At the time we were, what, 17, 18, and, and, and it, it sort of felt a bit, a bit of a thrill, I guess, you know, it, it, sort, of, it sort of was like the band that we, we'd seen them a few times and coming down, they're doing this. And, and, and like I said, I think it was more about the, what they were doing. As the performance comes to an end, Wilker Rothers makes an unexpected discovery. Spectral shapes, motifs and melodic archetypes drift in and disappear, while the occasional mythical beast emerges from the ocean of drone, rising and submerging with barely a ripple. Imaginary colours pulse lysergically, and the drift of time is forgotten within the boundaries of limitless sound. How could so little mean so much? And what happened to all of those stupid and meaningless questions that seemed so important earlier? After 44 minutes, and 17 seconds of this sort of thing, our perpetual motion machine begins its descent back to what we will laughingly refer to as reality. The music ends, and a smattering of applause greets the relief and disappointment of relative silence. I looked up from my base and tried to come to terms with not doing the thing I had been doing for nearly 50 minutes. I shook the blood back into my rigid and aching left hand and I flexed the claw of my pick hand. I checked that the other musicians were finished and then reached down to switch off my amplifier. I was quite surprised to find that it was impossible to switch it off. It was impossible to switch it off because I had never switched it on in the first place. This was quite confusing and embarrassing until I realised that nobody, not even me, who had been sitting on my amplifier, had actually noticed that it wasn't switched on. A monkey could have done what I had just done. A non-existent monkey could have done it. The ducks outside could have done it. I stood up and walked over to the bar to get a drink, leaving my bass guitar propped up against the amplifier ready for the next set. Steve Evans. <laughs> the, f- the funny thing was, right, because it was not a loud gig, right? You, you know, you got to remember, we were like sitting in a foyer. It, it was a quiet, you know, it was a pretty low volume affair. And so we are all sat pretty close together. And, you know, I, I think I, I was next to Will and I could hear what he was playing on his bass just because I was close enough and the room was quiet enough that I could hear what he was strumming, Right. I, mean, I didn't even I didn't even know realize to none of us realized his bass wasn't you know yeah it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't just him in his defense no you know nobody looked at him I, I don't think anybody knew till afterwards uh, because it, you know it's that quiet that it, it, it you know we could hear it I think you can I think you can hear it on the recording I think you can now and again you can hear just his plectrum you know just the click of his plectrum Patfish the music that was being made was not loud. I was wondering this morning how, how different it would have sounded if Willie had actually been plugged in. Um, I think it would have given it a lot more weight. Because Will wasn't plugged in, the music had a strange... It was, it was much sort of emptier and more evanescent than one had ever heard from the Spaceman crowd. You know, there was always with them, there was that grinding throb down the middle. 
that was completely absent of this. It just kind of hovered, you know, and it was quite quiet. Andy Jackson had missed the first part of the performance and was interested to know how long the band had been playing for. So they'd been sawing away there for three quarters of an hour and, um, well, fortunately for me, just as um, just as my tape was kind of due to run out, they kind of pulled this diminuendo and kind of went down to nothing and then that was it, boom. Uh, left the stage and um, the people that I sat down with, I, sa- I said to this guy, Tim... Um, I said, Tim, well, you know, how long are they, how much did I miss? And he, you know, he, he mumbled something about, oh, well, you know, they've been playing for for that long. And I thought he meant that much before I'd even got there. So I just presumed that they'd been there for an hour and a half. And I thought, blimey, that's, that's like three times longer than they normally play for. And they're only playing one chord as well. So that's a kind of superhuman feat. Colin Paul. I think they were playing for... 90 minutes wouldn't be far off. No, I, I, th- I'm, I think it was about that as well. You know, I had a feeling that, you know, 90 minutes probably push you about my, well, my time I went to see Sun O and they played like maybe three chords in 90 minutes, I think. But, um, you know, this was fewer than that. Um, but it, it was, it was, it was, it was about an hour and a half because, but I don't remember feeling at the end of it, oh, I thank fuck, you know, they finally finished or, or anything like that. It felt sort of right. And in fact, I slightly remember thinking, Oh, okay, they're done. Because you kind of settled into it, but certainly we arrived there about five minutes, five minutes late tops, because as Paul said, they started playing. I can't recall when Andy turned up, but then it's just sort of, you know, ended up getting it on one of the many bootleg CDs or whatever came out many years later. And it's been like 45 minutes listening to it yesterday, 43 minutes or whatever. And I was kind of thinking well what's the limit to a cd what sort of 79 minutes 80 minutes i was thinking well it would be about that length um, but the tannoy certainly listening to it again yesterday for the you know ladies and gentlemen wings of desire you know that was at least two-thirds of the way through we asked paul and Cole if they were expecting the band to play a second set a lot of it is conflated with with the gig that we subsequently when we subsequently went to see them um until quite recently I had it in my head that they did two sets. They did the, the evening, the, the contemporary satire music, and then after we all shuffled off into the lecture theatre to watch them play. But I know that's not the case. But in my head, I almost conflated that. But I do remember them going, and it was quite sudden when they kind of stopped. And I, I think we, I just remember we sort of sat around and, again, we weren't really that worried about it because we were quite comfortable sitting there on the sofas. We weren't standing around or anything, and they, they didn't, and we... We must have just just headed off. I don't remember being outraged. They didn't come back. No, it was just, I I don't recall that as strongly, but it was just like, okay, fine. Not entirely sure what they were doing in the first place. This is going, yeah, this is all right. You know, sit there, enjoy it. And then, you know, sort of, they stopped. And it was like, yeah, perhaps they're going for a break or whatever. Then, you know, people started putting amps away. So it's just like, okay, it's finished. As Paul said, we're quite comfy. We're sitting on plush leather sofas we just watched a, you know best part of an hour and a half of something a bit odd but you know enjoyable and it was just like it was still sunny out the night was still young not that we were going to like trip the wild you know lights of Brentford because you know, there weren't any but but it was just kind kind of like oh well okay we'll just sit here and see what happens and then eventually they didn't come back out and you know someone started packing the stuff away it could have been half an hour afterwards Steve Evans you see, I think originally, the way I remembered it, I thought we were going to do two 45 minutes. We're going to do 45 minutes, have an interval, 
and do another 45 minutes. But I think, I think, I don't know how long we played that first one, but I know it's over an hour. Pat Fish was telling us about the plans for him and Lawrence O'Keefe to join in with the band. Um, this, of course, would have been in the second set that turned out to be purely imaginary <laughs> on account of the young man who came in after the first set in this immaculate sort of yuppie blue and white striped shirt, very well coiffured, very well spoken, came into the windowless dressing room, which was just a cloud of marijuana smoke, came shuffling up to Sonic and announced, and I think I can quote this verbatim, I don't think our audience particularly appreciates your kind of minimalism. <laughs> Sonic was just oh, staring him down, Sonic style. And I was standing just behind. I was starting to laugh and I was thinking, we're never going to do this second set, are we? Oh. And sure enough, sure enough, money changed hands and we were left in our windowless room to smoke as long as we didn't come out and play anymore. So Lawrence and I were there with our instruments ready to join in the one note action, but it never happened. Wilker Others. We went back out into the art centre foyer, packed up our equipment and went home. The live recording of that performance continues to sell 27 years later. To this day, I'm not sure if it was art or not. Andy Jackson remembers the tape recorder used on the night. It wasn't an unwieldy tape recorder. It was a Sony recording Walkman, quite professional, high-end one, WMD3. Uh, with a manual recording level and a chrome switch on it. Um, it had a plug-in powered microphone as well. Anyway, after the Waterman's gig, I kind of took I took my tape hot-footed back east and I played it to Nick and Paul and we were just, uh, wow, that's amazing, isn't it? Totally unlike anything that Spaceman 3 normally did at a live show. Yeah, certainly their records describe this kind of trajectory from from this kind of super heavy juggernaut sound to this kind of gossamer light kind of ripples on water. But pretty much for the couple of years where I was going to see them, the live show was always this kind of high octane burn up. So this was something that was totally different. And and obviously, yeah, it did sort of give a foretaste of of, um, stuff that they would be doing on on the next album. The Sowing Seeds crowd had expanded to include Vanita Joshi. I grew up in rugby and there was a very small music scene. And so I used to write to every fanzine person that I could find. So I would find out about fanzines from other fanzines and, you know, they'd message each other. And somehow I just became immersed in this world of fanzines. So I started writing to... Nick and Paul, who ran the Sowing Seeds fanzine in London while I was living in rugby, we wrote to each other a lot. It was always Nick that replied. And then I planned to come to London and I met them because I came to London to see Spaceman 3 at Yulu. I got the slow train, caught the last song before they, they played um, supporting gay bikers on acid. So I became really good friends with the Sowing Seeds people. And then I had a holiday job in Croydon. And while I was at this holiday job, I went for an interview in Camden for a magazine publishing company and they gave me the job. So I had to leave the holiday job early. I sent a letter to Nick 
saying I was moving to London and did he know anywhere I could stay? And Nick and Paul and their friend Ian were sharing a flat in South Woodford. And they said I could stay there for a couple of weeks. And I felt very indebted to them, paid their bills, really wanted to you know, not take advantage of anyone. So while I was there, they were working on the new issue of sowing seeds. And Andy Jackson used to take pictures and also interview bands. So there's a lot of people contributing to the fanzine. It's a lot of hard work, actually. It seems like such a simple thing. Everyone seemed to have a fanzine, but to interview the band, set up interviews, go and see them, find a time, buy them beers, all that kind of thing. So they didn't actually finish the last issue of Sowing Seeds. But with that issue, they planned to give away a flexi. So I knew the telescopes because I used to write to them because they had a fanzine, Stephen had a fanzine. And Nick used to write to Joe from the telescopes. So weirdly, we both knew the telescopes independently. And I think we met, we all met up in Birmingham at one of the telescopes gigs, maybe Sinatra's in Birmingham. So long story short, I ended up staying with Nick and Paul from Sowing Seeds in South Woodford. And when they finished this flexi, the first one was Loop and the Telescopes. So we decided we would go and sell it at the Loop gig. And it was New Year's Eve, so the end of 88. So we went to Fulham Greyhound with a stack of flexis, not much to carry, 50 pence a piece, selling them to everyone there. They just ran out. Whatever we carried, we sold out of. So we had a few more that I then sold at the Spaceman 3 gig at Dingwalls the following month in January. And spacemen were laughing at me, saying I was really cheeky selling a loop flexi. There was always this little competition or animosity there. So then as things progressed, I was saying to Nick and Paul that we should do a series of singles, really, or flexis. And we didn't really know what was happening then. It was just we were music lovers. And we ended up doing a seven inch with the telescopes, Kick the Wall. And... I used to write to bands as well as fanzine people. I used to write to a lot of bands directly. And I always said to them, if I had a record label, I'd put your records out. You know, just a flippant comment, really. But I remember saying that to them. And I chatted to the Sowing Seeds guys. And I said, look, I know the Poo Sticks. I'm sure they would give us a flexi. So long story short, we ended up doing a Poo Sticks flexi. And that sold out really quickly. I would go around the London record shops. I remember in Camden, Rhythm Records, giving them 10 copies, going back a week later to collect the few pounds that they owed us. So it was a very much a cottage industry, working from home, just having fun, really. Andy Jackson. Talking about giving away flexies with the fanzine. Now, obviously, this was a great way to interest punters. Uh, you know, I mean... Reading a fanzine while you're waiting for the band to come on is one thing, but if you've got the extra pull of having a bit of music with it as well, and you can you can levy up the price a little bit as well. So I think the first one was um, a, a live loop track from Yulu. Maybe the following year, it was like, well, why don't we take a little excerpt from that Spaceman 3 tape? And then on the B-side, now there are a couple of bands localish bands that we were friends with and quite interested in one was the fury things and the other one was bark psychosis 
and we figured well if we put these shorter tracks by these young bands on one side and Spaceman 3 on the other side then we can get a little bit of exposure around this time they had designs on starting up a, a proper label and putting proper records out so I think this this Flexi was maybe the first Sheree release Benita Joshi this idea of doing flexies or seven inch singles continued and I knew Spaceman 3 having grown up in rugby so we were thinking well what can we do next and Andy was because he wrote for the Sewing Seeds guys and he took a lot of photos he had this recording of the Dream Weapon show and flexies a terrible quality anyway so we thought well maybe we could do an extract of the flexi so I contacted Spaceman 3 and they were fine with it. So we went into production. I think there was two versions actually with different color sleeves. I think one was yellow and maybe the other, I don't know, blue or pink or something. I can't remember. So yeah, again, we just did this fanzine flexi thing and fold over sleeves. So we we're all sitting there folding up these huge pieces of paper, putting the flexi in with the PVC wallets. And that's really how that all came into being was just being friends with bands and asking them if we could do flexies or seven inches and at the time there was so many fanzines giving away flexi discs with a fanzine so it was very much of the time it was something that everybody did anyway I remember getting a sea urchins flexi and the Sarah records guys had had done a bunch of fanzines and flexies I used to write to them as well so yeah we just we just thought it'd be a really good idea to to release something that hadn't been released before rather than a demo or a track. It was, how do we make something exclusive? And Andy had this recording, which I think he was probably the only person that had a recording. Andy Jackson. So yeah, this this came out, sold it at gigs. I I wrote a little bit of um, blurb to go on the, on the sort of fold out. It got reviewed in, what was, what was he writing for? Everett True or the legend, depending on which organ it was, mentioned, oh, um, it's, it comes complete with some, uh, some verbiage on the inside. And uh, so I had to look up this word verbiage, and I thought, well, that's a bit... Uh, that was my verbiage on the inside, a little kind of... Uh, it was supposed to be a little evocative bit of um, writing, but, you know, this was the time of um, towering cathedrals of... Um, so it was kind of... It was paying lip service to, to that, really. Steve Mitchell had been running the Fierce Recordings label since the mid-80s, as Vanita Joshi recalls. Well, I used to write to Steve as well because I was writing to the Poo Sticks. So Fierce was the Poo Sticks label. And I remember ordering on tape. There was an on-tape box set. And I ordered it from, I think, Rhythm Records in Cambridge. I used to order loads of stuff from there. And I sent off my check and I was waiting and waiting. Eventually, I got a letter back saying, sorry, we didn't have enough copies to fulfill the orders. I was absolutely devastated. I'm almost over it now. And I probably got in touch directly with the band as well, asking if there was any chance of buying a copy, but they didn't have any. So we did know Steve. And much later on, we ended up doing an album with the Poo Sticks much further down the line. But I did. I met Hugh and Steve at Sinatra's in Birmingham. They were big fans of the sea urchins. So before I moved to London, they would 
I remember they stayed with Jamie from the sea urchins in Birmingham and we all shared a train back to London together and that was the day I had my second interview for my full-time job so I didn't sleep all night we got the train at six in the morning and Hugh gave me a signed Poustics t-shirt I remember Steve from Fear saying sign it for Vanita and it's signed on the sleeve and I went straight to my job interview having not slept but I got the job some things just meant to be so we did know Steve at that time so I'm guessing he must have come up with the idea of getting the tape from Andy Andy Jackson this guy Steve from Fierce got in touch and he was interested in doing the whole thing on a CD and uh, now Steve had previously put out uh, the Jesus and Mary Jane Riot EP a little seven inch single with their North London Poly Riot on it so he was obviously up for a crack I was yeah I was I was fine with this he, he wrote me a, a letter back when it was he sent me a few copies of it and uh, I think I gave away two of the copies and I kept one of them for myself yeah that was it it was nice to have it nice to have it on a CD so I wouldn't wear the tape out basically Steve Mitchell describes the kind of label that Fierce was uh, Fierce was a kind of it was a hard label to categorise I suppose because it started the first release was a Charles Manson album and it went through like the Pooh Sticks and ended up with Spaceman. Spaceman 3 was the last thing. So, I mean, you, if you can make any sense out of that, it's hard to tell, really. My usual way of referring to the label is as the ever-mischievous Fierce Recordings. Yeah, yeah, I wish it was ever-mischievous. I mean, sometimes it sometimes the label was mischievous, but sometimes it was quite pedestrian, I've got to say. But there was a period when Rough Trade started throwing money at me. And, uh, and then I didn't, when I didn't have to put my hand in my pocket to justify the uh, commercial reasoning for releasing something, then stuff tended to get released that perhaps shouldn't have. Steve recalls first hearing the recording of the Waterman's gig. I, well, I loved it because I, mean, I was really into drone stuff. That, I mean, that was the reason that I initially liked Spaceman 3. That was the element of it that I particularly liked. And uh, yeah, so when that came up, I was all for it. I mean, there weren't many bands. Well, I, well, maybe there were, but there was nobody we knew of out in the real world who was doing what they were doing at the at the length that they were doing it. Um, so uh, they, they were they were pretty good for 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 me. I've got to say, and I was really happy when that thing came up, and I and I got the tape from Vanita. My Poostix operation um, was having some records released by Cherie at the time and so one day I was at their place and um, and Nick was showing me his wall of cassettes and this was this was one of them which I expressed a preference for and, uh, and he told me to take it away and do whatever I wanted with it which is what I did. But I don't know where that tape is now I've got to say because I've looked through all my boxes of cassettes and I definitely don't have it. So I must have given it back to him, which is unusual for me. Cherie had already done the flex theme, and that was already that. So, uh, so it wasn't an original idea. But yeah, I wanted to do a longer thing, so I contacted Sonic. These days, no one calls this performance the Waterman's Art Centre gig. It is known simply as Dream Weapon. Steve Mitchell. Let me let me let me just give myself a round of applause here. This is my claim to fame. I've got to say. I'd been so because I'd been really into drone stuff. I'd been really into Angus McLee's stuff 
what I'd been able to hear of it, which was not much. I really wanted to to do an Angus MacLeese thing, and this was be this was because I discovered in 1981 quite how much stuff Angus MacLeese had recorded. So I was staying at the Chelsea Hotel, and I was sitting in the lounge uh, in the in the um, in the the bar place, whatever it is at the front reception. That's the word. Don't go to hotels much, obviously. And I found myself sitting next to Viva, the Andy Warhol superstar, Viva, because she lived there. So I got speaking to Viva about the olden days, and she said, oh, you should uh, contact Gerard Malanga. He likes to talk about that kind of thing. She gave me Gerard Malanga's phone number. I called him up and went round. And he just made this Angus McCleese checklist thing. It was pretty rough. It's like a folder more than a book listing all the stuff that Angus had recorded. Well, where do I get any of this stuff? It went on for pages and pages, and the guy had obviously recorded a lot of stuff. Uh, and I, I couldn't find anybody who had anything. The first Angus stuff I actually got was that thing from the Aspen magazine, the Flexi that he did, uh, which was would have been about like 83, 83 or 84 or something. So then I spent a long time trying to find out and I thought this was great. This was everything I, I thought it could be. And then I tried to find out who owned the Angus MacLeese material because I wanted to release a record by him. Nobody knew who, who owned the stuff. Nobody knew where any of the tapes were. The guy who supposedly had the tapes couldn't find him. Don't know what had happened to him. And um, anyway, all this while I was thinking that this project was going to be called Dream Weapon because this had been the, the name of an Angus MacLeese project from 65 to late 70s off and on. And he had a, he had a, when, he, when he went to Tibet, he had a little book publishing thing he called Dream Weapon. So it was in my head. In the end, I gave up trying to find out who owned the Angus material and I compiled my little Angus MacLeese single. I don't know if you ever came across that. It's, it's a classic. It's, got, it's, a bit, it's the big beat, as you can imagine. Uh, there's 100 copies in a bag with a sugar cube and all. It was crap. Anyway, very, very nice. But that was all I could find. So, and, But I still really, really wanted to put out this Angus thing called Dream Weapon. When eventually I came across this, uh, the opportunity to do this evening of sitar music spaceman thing, I thought, thank you very much, Dream Weapon, we'll have that. That's why it's called Dream Weapon. It's because I couldn't get hold of the Angus MacLeese material that would have otherwise allowed me to make a record called Dream Weapon. The sleeve includes an excerpt of Lamont Young's writing. That's from the uh, the Aspen magazine number nine from 1970 that Angus MacLeese had been editor for. So yeah, Lamont Young had been one of the contributors to that and that was one of the, the pieces of thing that came in this magazine. And I thought it was appropriate. The fierce version of Dream Weapon also included a version of Ecstasy Symphony called Ecstasy in Slow Motion. On the vinyl version of the album, this track is cut in an unusual way. It wasn't my intention to have it cut uh, in the way that it was, uh, which is backwards, in other words, from the label outwards. So it plays from the label out. And if you're not quick, if you're not, if you're not there in time, your stylus will fall off the end of the record. Well, it wasn't my intention. That, that was uh, George Peckham's idea, Porky's idea. And we'd already cut the first side, and uh, and he clearly thought that the first side was, you know, nonsense, which is why it's got the uh, the inscription that it has in the in the runout grooves, something about transcendental vibrations, blah 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 blah. He was taking the taking the piss, 
So then when it came time to do the second side, he had this, he had this idea to make it more interesting. Totally impractical, I've got to say, but uh, who cares at that point? I just thought it was fun. I, d I had no idea that that was possible. Dream Weapon was later issued on Sympathy for the Record Industry, and in an attempt to go back to the source, Andy was chased for his original recording. A couple of years later, by this point, I've moved to Brighton. One day, the phone goes, phone gets picked up. It's Sonic on the phone for you. Really? What? So, pick up the phone. You must appreciate that, kind of, at this time, Sonic Boom was kind of revered quasi-comically, but still, you know, very much respected by my little fraternity of uh, music fans. We used to sit around and get stoned and, and kind of, like, dish the dozens. You know, the dozens is like this, yeah, your mama, your mama's so fat, this kind of thing. And uh, so we, we, we'd sit there in the countryside going you see that hay bale that's that's what that's one spliff that's one spliff for sonic boom you know you see that you see that big chimney that's that's sonic boom spliff you know sonic boom's uh tutors are so big that he needs fred dibner to climb up the top to spark it off for him he would always ha be turned out the same way you know no mucking about no no worrying about you know having cool looking flares like we did or frilly shirts or anything like that just straight down the line you know this is who i am i just like getting boxed and uh and, and playing my music so you've got to respect the guy i've got i've got sonic boom on the other end of the phone so you know i mean in awe of this person really and uh, and he's saying to me oh hi yeah 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 I'd, I'd love to get a copy of that tape and I'm thinking, well, well, what I should have been thinking was, well, you know, haven't you got a copy of the CD, mate? You know, your face is all over it. But I'm, I'm saying, uh, oh, well, oh, oh, man. Well, I, unfortunately, I, I can't really copy it. You know, I had problems with my tape deck at the moment. It wasn't copying, I don't know. I said, well, you know, I could always, like, send it to you. Or maybe he suggested that. Anyway, but the tape was duly sent off to Sonic Boom. And that's the last I ever heard of the tape. Maybe, uh, you know, a year or so after that. Now, I used to work in this record store and we used to get imports in from the States. And I think once upon a time, we, we, we got in um, this dream weapon on sympathy for the record industry. And I think maybe I looked inside and I, I, I recognised this copy inside as being written by me you know what i love is the kind of um the, the you know the cosmological symmetry in a way because um i mean take something like uh, metallic ko stooges album now this is something that was um recorded under some kind of duress except on the stooges album it's light bulbs paper cups bottle of strohs hitting the microphone hitting the strings <laughs> The Spaceman 3 tape, a palpable sense of resentment from the punters there. Certainly not the, the threat of violence, you know. The most you would have got would have been a, a serviette formed into a paper dart. 
there's some kind of mirroring there of the uh, of the kind of response that the band were getting perhaps and then also i mean metallic ko allegedly it was recorded by a friend of the band who was like uh recording it on a four track and and james williamson went to this guy and uh, said hey uh you know i i, I really need like uh like a project uh, uh, you know he was he was doing like sound recording course at college you know i really need a project hey could i get my hands on that tape get a copy of that tape and so the guy gave it to james williamson and that was the last time the guy ever saw his stooges tape and james williamson well whatever happened but then it became one of the more well-known stooges albums didn't it there's there's some kind of as i say some kind of cosmological poetry the sympathy and subsequent reissues of dream weapon include an extra track called spaceman jam Credited to Kemba Pierce, one of the Waterman's participants has recently clarified that it was he rather than Jason accompanying Pete. Steve Evans. I only put my hand up to that in, 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 in defence of Jason's honour because, you know, it's like he's a much, much better guitar player than I am. And, uh, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty ropey, man, what I'm playing on that. It's like that. I think that's probably the first time I ever jammed guitars with anybody. That, I mean, that, that was funny, that was, because, I mean, we, we did it at Pete's. It's just me and him around there at his parents' house. You know, so I bring this home, I have a jam, yeah, okay. So we did, we, we, you know, we did it, and it was, it's, it, I thought, you know, I, I thought it sounded quite good, and he obviously thought it sounded quite good, and we probably listened to it back two or three times while we were bombing around in the car and thought, yeah, that was that was all right. And then it just got forgotten. And I forgot about it until about 10 years ago, probably, when I, so I, I, I first got my hands on a Dream Weapon CD and I, I went through the Dream Weapon thought, uh, you know, the, the sitar thing, and got Space and Jam, and like within, within like five seconds of it, it was like, fucking hell, what's this? You know, not, not in a bad way. I, mean, I, don't, I don't mind it's there, but it just, it just cracked me up. It's like, oh my God, that's, uh, I know exactly what that is. I was quite surprised. I think I was 18 when I got my first guitar, so it would have been like 86. I think it, it would have been either just prior or just post Sound of Confusion coming out, I suppose. Dream Weapon has become one of Spaceman 3's most famous albums, with an appeal extending beyond their fan base. Andy Jackson. In Brighton, there was this pub that all of the music bore music snob posse used to frequent of whom i was a card carrying member uh, called the heart and hand so you could always go in there and run into people and and have a you know uh, a frank music bore conversation about stuff and one day i was in there with um with my mate harry ben and he was waxing lyrically about this amazing psychedelic album that went on for like three quarters of an hour where they just like play one song and it's only like one chord and it's by this it's by space i think what spacemen three and he said yeah that's it i said that's my tape and he went what i said yeah i recorded that and he went no way man yes man Hey man, so yeah, I mean, I was aware of the fact that it had sort of gone beyond my little posse, but obviously, Spacemen Three were dead and gone for over a decade. As for being able to gauge the kind of uh, the interest that was still there in the band, I don't really know. Obviously, these days, you can go on YouTube and um, and you can click on this dream weapon track and and you can see how many um how many hits it's had how many likes 
and then just read through the uh, comments and I suppose for me anonymously it's nice to think that in my little humble way I've had some input in the kind of cultural canon. Love Blobs Cole and Paul reflect on the legacy of the night. At the time it was unusual, different, interesting and you know pretty much unattended. It's only afterwards it's become like you know sort of all those famous cliches about how many people saw the Sex Pistols at the trade hall in Manchester. You know it's in reality, it was about 12 people, but it's kind of, you know, sort of, for the people who said it was there, it's about a thousand. It's... I found it a strange when it, when it came out because my my brother, who's a couple of years older than me, and I, he, I think he bought it. And I remember, but, and he wouldn't have known that I had been there or anything, but I just remember finding it really, really bizarre. We asked Steve Mitchell how he feels about his part in bringing the recording to a wider audience. I'm, I'm pleased. <laughs> I mean, I like the band, so it's. A, I mean, that's the reason I was doing the label in the first place, is because I just wanted to be involved somehow in in stuff. So I was very pleased with that. It's hard to imagine any other band of the time having the nerve to perform the evening of contemporary sitar music, and it was witnessed by an audience of the size that harked back to the early days of the band, when the number of paying punters who came to see them could often be counted in lo- the low double digits, if that. Thanks to many of the people we've heard from, and particularly to Andy Jackson, who has the last word, it'll be there for us to enjoy forever. Well, however few people there were, and in spite of how outnumbered we were, I mean, that's nothing compared to the microscopic corner of cyber-cultural consciousness that Dream Weapon occupies, you know, relative to the grand scheme of things. Let's not get carried away, you know, overestimating its significance as an artefact. Reflecting my own fortunate position and perspective, you know, am I not ever so smugly snug in the comforting knowledge that were it not for my humble actions, then, you know, this event might have been lost to the mythic mists of time. Well, listening to it last night, it sounds amazing, really, rising and falling uh, you know, a bunch of blokes improvising around each other without anything approximating chops. You know, it's music that doesn't sustain any ego. The selfhood is sublimated to the O-mind, appropriately uh, anonymous. It's paradoxical that there were so few heads in attendance to experience it firsthand. It sounds as if it ought to have been recorded at a planetarium, bedding a Carl Sagan lecture about the cosmos. You know, everyone reclining on those comfy chairs, gazing heavenwards with DMT detonating their synapses. It'd be nice to imagine that, as if borne up upon that golden disc that went up with Voyager, you know, the whop, whop, whop of Sonic Starstreamer might yet be arcing its way beyond the confines of the solar system and on into deep space. 
Well, we really enjoy talking to so many people for that. And I think it's an interesting story in its own right, isn't it? Um, I mean, I, I don't know about you, Mark, but I think the most interesting thing that I got out of it that I didn't know previously was how long they were playing for on the night. That's right. Uh, I think that when most people bought that album when it came out on vinyl, they probably thought it was really just that, however many 20 plus minutes that appears on one side of that, mm. uh, to then get the CD and thinking, oh, there's actually a hell of a lot more than this. And to find there was actually even more was yeah. certainly surprising, was uh, a bit of a revelation. But I mean, I'd certainly always thought that the, the CD was the whole thing, well, maybe a minute or so off the beginning, because you can hear it's already mm. going when the tape starts, but not much more. But then there were some bits written at the time, like the liner notes that, that Andy wrote saying it was an hour and a half, but he thought retrospectively that was based on a misunderstanding with what he was saying with Tim Cedar but um, from what Colin and Paul say it looks like that really was the case after all I mean it's such a long time ago and people have got their own contradictory memories of things but um, yeah it does seem that 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 was the case. When I first got it I think that hearing the uh, intro to uh, what's the film uh, Wings of Desire more than once I thought hold on a sec has this been looped here because obviously it is very repetitive yeah. that's the, <laughs> partly the point and I actually had to go back after about the third listen I realized that the whole thing was in fact one piece yeah. which was surprising but I, I mean anyway it was such a weird thing for a Spaceman 3 fan to get at that time anyway uh-huh. uh you, you easily the the most unusual thing that was ever released by them uh or by them of them yeah. um and the fact that we are giving it the amount of attention we are, I think, does show that it's not only stood up, but it still remains a fairly fascinating piece of music. Also, the fact that we probably talked to more people that were actually in attendance at, at the gig itself. Yes. <laughs> pretty amazing. Too. Yes, very true. So that was great for to hear from, from Colin Ball. So thanks to both of them. If anyone's, I mean, I'd not heard of the Love Blobs previously. Um, I know that you had actually seen them. I saw the Love Blobs. Yeah. Um, but no, a new one to me. So I did go and check out what I could hear about them I mean you can tell listening to their material that they they must have been one of some of the first people to hear a copy of Nirvana's Bleach because there's quite a big influence there but it's not just a it's not just a knockoff copyist band. They they had something. I think. No, no, was... they were they were they were God, they were noisy, seriously, <laughs> and live even noisier. And although uh, Paul, I think, had got in touch with me um, separately about this, uh, one of the reasons I knew to pursue them was because uh, Andy Jackson told me that they were friends of his and he knew they were there on the night, which gave me people to investigate and get in touch with. And it was a real coincidence with Andy because um, uh, his name appeared in. Eric Morse's book uh, as the person who taped it and so I put a request out on one of the Spaceman 3 Facebook groups just in case uh, anyone knew a way of getting in touch with him not really expecting anything to come of it and uh, one of the guys on the group said yeah he's one great friend of mine and lives quite nearby I see him a lot so I'll ask him and uh, when Andy did get in touch with me it turns out he lives about five minutes away from me (laughs) so weird coincidences (laughs) and so it was lovely and he went beyond the call of duty because rather than just come round and chat to me for a bit he recorded his own his own interview with himself which uh, I guess is nice because it gave him chance to think about what he wanted to say really well so you know lots I'm sure a lot of us are grateful for the fact that it's thanks to him this isn't just um a legendary night that uh, there would be half a dozen people who might tell us about it if we were lucky to bump into them but instead so we've actually got that recording to always enjoy and a great recording too and if you think that that was kind of done on the hoop really yeah yeah it's, it's very uh, clear it's isn't it lovely and lovely and clear 
Uh, it was also really good to talk to Venetia Joshi. Thanks very much to her and Venetia. Gosh, I mean, you can tell the people who are uh, um, used to talking about their work because uh, what a professional she was. Mm-hmm. The moment we started, it was just straight into it and, and lots of great stories and no, she could she do one on just a minute. No hesitation. <laughs> um, that was super. Um, and Steve Mitchell as well. Yeah. You know, all those stories of, of how it came to be on Fierce and how he came up with the title. Steve said something uh, I thought very amusing, which summed up to me the whole um, niche nature <laughs> of the podcast that we're doing, because this is a little something he said in between the stories. I've got to tell you this story because no other fucker is interested, right? Yeah, well, that probably Excellent. does sum it all up, really. <laughs> Thanks very much, Steve. I'm sure that we could. there'll be no triviality too trivial for us to delve into in a bit more detail if uh, you've got any more stories of uh, <laughs> that level of obscurity. Thanks to Mark Rifoy for popping along pretty much at the last minute to add a bit of colour to uh, the story of John McIver, another name I just got from Eric Morse's book. I suppose it's, it's John McIver, really, that um, we have to thank for it happening at all, because oh. if he was hadn't got in touch with spaceman management with the suggestion can they play sitars then uh, it wouldn't have been a booking that they would have even been considered for and so, certainly not a not a direction that he expected them to go in either no, no, absolutely <laughs> it was brilliant to talk to steve evans as well who i don't think has talked much about his spaceman three connections before well he was an integral part of that i mean if you think yeah. that out of the four musicians only three of them actually <laughs> appeared on the on the recording and he was one of them yeah absolutely and he wasn't entirely sure himself i think which part it was he was playing and of course we don't know for <laughs> sure but i think it's it's the sort of bedrock that keeps it going i think it's the foundational drone right. sound but i don't know whatever thanks for taking part steve and thanks for talking to us i'd also finally finally good to uh nailed the fact that it was indeed him on Spaceman Jam rather than Jason, which yes, uh, indeed. I think uh, we finally got that out there. He had <laughs> written about that on one of the Facebook groups before, but I don't think it's been it's been written up properly anywhere. And mm. uh, now, uh, yes, well, that's official. And hopefully people at Discogs will take some note uh, of it now. Uh, yeah, after my little fisticuffs <laughs> with them previously on that, uh, on that fact. Mark has tried to uh, amend the record on Discogs but uh, no one was having it because there no. was no, no evidence to back it up. Well, I think, I think we've got it uh, now. I was arrested by the Discogs police <laughs> on more than one occasion. <laughs> and thanks to Will Carruthers. I mean, it must be obvious that, that Will's parts uh, sound quite different to the rest of it, and that's because it's his own reading of the chapter that he wrote about that gig uh, for his book, um, Playing the Bass with Three Left Hands used here with his permission thank you very much will that chapter that the reading of that chapter is a free download from will's patreon account and if you sign up which is well worth it i would say he's been reading the the whole of the book there amongst other things you can go and look on his patreon where it tells you what you get for different levels but that's something that everyone gets so um yeah that that was super to have his uh, his own words about that we didn't think it was worth uh, interviewing him to ask him to tell us stuff that he'd already both written and, <laughs> and said before so that was a great way to incorporate that and of course um it was great to talk for the second podcast in a row to Pat Fish. And both Mark Absolutely. and I were devastated that, to learn less than a week after we spoke to him that he had died. Um, it, it was so, I mean, Mark, both, both you and I, I think, had only really known Pat to talk to this yeah. year. Yeah. Um, 
but he was so full of enthusiasm for this, even though it wasn't about his own work, the things no. that we wanted to talk to him about. And I, in fact, I was quite um, honest to him when we first got in touch, saying that I didn't really know much about his work. Um, and he didn't care about that. He just wanted to talk about any of the, the, the stories he had. Be worth adding that I've investigated in quite a lot of his stuff since and uh, kind of kicked myself for not having done so before. But like so many, a lot of that kind of scene uh, didn't exactly pass you by. It was something you were aware of, but perhaps didn't investigate enough. And I'm certainly glad I did. Yeah. Lots and uh, lots of great stuff. If there's anyone who hasn't checked out Pat Sings before and, and is interested in it, I did ask him um, where he suggested that I started. And he he had his album Cult the Basement was the one he recommended. It's yeah, great. And, and that is a great one, yeah. So they have start there if you're a newcomer. But I imagine that many people listening won't be the mm. newcomers that, that we were at all and would already have known that. I mean, we Pat just made us feel when we were talking to him like we'd been friends for years. Yeah. He just wanted to keep talking about stuff after we'd finished that Dream Weapon interview. Um, it was just well, it was general general chit chat about what he was doing later that day, and yeah, this, it was just a like old mates chatting. He was he was amazing. Yeah, he was. I mean, when I was first um, scouting around for people to talk to for this one and, and asking on the Facebook groups if uh, anyone had been there, I hadn't asked him at that point. Of course, I was going to. I knew he was going to be one of the major stories, but I was trying to find, you know, lesser known players to begin with. Mm -hmm. uh, but before I got round to getting in touch and, and asking if he would do it, he just got back in touch and said, oh, I was there, of course. Um, yeah. <laughs> if, uh, if you'd like me to talk about things, yeah, I had to say, well, of course I do. Um, he also he also came up, well, he 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 produced the greatest quote of the entire thing with the old guys at the at the bar shaking yeah. their heads into their pints i think that's a wonderful quote yeah i know no i think it, it was lovely to to hear his stories and um it was quite a blow to us people who are only fairly new acquaintances um so to pat fish I mean, yeah. i'm always a bit dubious of people who say oh we'll, we're dedicating this to to whoever um especially if it's a little endeavor like this which is is nothing special compared to someone who had an entire body of work over a lifetime of performances mm. but uh in that spirit i suppose you know well this is dedicated to pat and uh we're very grateful for the times he spent having a chat with us yeah we'll miss you it's been such a while since we've done a podcast that um, a few things have happened uh, since uh, the last one uh, including the sonic boom gigs where he came to the uk to tour the all things being equal. Um, Mark, you got to see that in Leeds? I did at uh, the Brudenell, uh, where he played in the community room, uh, which has a beautiful sound system in there. Uh, it was just as everybody knows, it was just Pete on his own with his bank of gear, just playing the new album from start to finish. No encore, no Space and Three stuff. And it was great. It sounded really good. The songs were done absolutely faithfully. That kind of sort of swirling hypnotic effect that the album has was uh, a thoroughly conveyed to everybody there it was it was a it was a really great evening and nice to nice to catch up with the man himself to start with there was uh there was an interesting moment when we were we were outside we spotted him and myself my wife and uh, some friends strolled up and said hello and we were having a chat with somebody else there uh chatted with him as well another guy about our age 
And uh, after about, I spent about 20 minutes chatting or anything, this guy leaned forward and uh, pointed to my friend Andy's T-shirt. He was wearing a Solkis T-shirt, pointed to one of the figures on it and said, oh, that's me. I turned to him to my amazement, realised that for the last 20 minutes I've been chatting to Richard Formby without having any idea who he was, which uh, I felt most embarrassed that somebody that uh, a, a kind of iconic figure that I'd admired for so many years, I'd just been chatting to without having any idea. But uh, yeah, lovely yeah. guy. Great to, great to meet him and, and great to catch up with the Kembers as well. It was, no, it was a terrific night, terrific night. And also the first gig in however many, 18 months, still the mm. only gig I've been to in almost two years now but yeah, a great well night, a great it, night. i i've uh, seen some recordings people filmed little bits and popped them on um, various places on the internet it looks like a lovely thing i was saying last time how i wasn't sure that i'd be comfortable enough to still go to gigs and i'm glad you got your first one in 18 months but i still couldn't quite manage to do that which was a real shame sorry pete and next time i hope but i did manage to finally feel um safe enough to pop along to see um pete baseman playing with the Lucifer Sams at the Victoria in Dalston. And that was super. That was lovely. Um, it's just Pete on his own with some of his gear and five songs, five or six songs, um, something off the last album, a few things I didn't recognise. So uh, hopefully he's working on some new things as well. So that, that was super. I know he doesn't get um, a chance to gig very, very often. Um, I hope there might be some more chances in the future. We'll have to see, but that was yeah. nice. And, and I yeah. felt more comfortable because it's only a little room that holds about 200 people. But there we are. And not news that will be new to anybody at all at this stage, but um, it wasn't announced when we were last doing a podcast. Of course, there's new spiritualized material that uh, this is true. lead track uh, has been put out, the reworking of something that Jason did a few years ago. Uh, I think it sounds really lovely. With a, a, a rather alarming video that goes with it, which uh, came out, I think, roughly about the same time as the COP26 conference yes and to me i thought they should have shown that video at that conference yeah. i yeah. thought it was uh, uh anybody who's not seen it i won't say anything about it but there is definitely there is a moment where things change in mm. that video and it's well worth a look well i suspect most people listening to this would have seen it but just in case i'll put a link where with all the other links that come off of this podcast yeah i think it sounds good it sounds um mm. you know same same sort of vein to the last album but apparently it was recorded this album this forthcoming one and the last one recorded around the same time so they're mm. sort of a two-part work which is um mirrored in the titles uh mm. if you although strangely the other way around because there's a, it's from Kurt Vonnegut Slaughterhouse 5 there's a line that said everything was beautiful and nothing hurt so uh, it's those two but yeah that's interesting isn't it yeah um but I'm looking forward to that only seven tracks but it's still got a fair running time and obviously some people I mean I'd like to (laughs) make it clear we have no special inside access to anything at all so we haven't got the new album but some people in the business obviously have not surprising if it was recorded such a long time ago because I heard someone talk about one of the tracks. I think it was the track Let It Bleed saying was um, amongst the best things they think he's ever done. So, yeah, more for us to look forward to in the new year. I can't remember the release date. When is it coming out? 25th of February. Yeah. And then uh, tour shortly after that, which I, I hope things will have calmed down again by April to give us a chance to go and see that. So it's been uh, a long time since we did the last of these podcasts. They were only ever planned to be a regular when we first started. The enthusiasm was very high and we were <laughs> getting them out every month or, or at least. 
if we can get four out in a year next year i'll be happy with that we'll just see how things go so um this has obviously been a biggie though isn't it yeah i was i mean that's uh, one of the reasons it's taken a long time to come out i was very excited about the prospect of talking to lots of people and telling a story but it just made it more work to do and i yeah. uh, rather put it off for a while thinking that it would be too much to get around to but once i finally did i was very happy to hear how it all developed and uh, yeah i, I think it's a, it's a nice little story but I did want to get this out before the end of the year, which I probably managed just on the final day. So uh, let's see if we can get some more in, in 2022. Hope you've all had a good year and a good holiday period. And uh, we shall see you next year. Thanks for coming. Good night. Good night and happy new year.